Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. We're going to be getting into a new sermon series this morning in the book of Genesis. Genesis part one, creation to the fall. And today we're going to start in Genesis chapter one. And we're going to be reading verses 24 all the way down to 31. And we're going to be talking about being created in the image of God. We're going to talk about what does that mean, being created in the image of God. Before we begin, anyone here want to hear a few testimonies? We've got some testimonies in the house, some things that have been happening. All right, a few here. Last week, you guys were praying for Isaiah. Becky's sitting up in front. Thank God for that. So Becky went up. They were looking to do five surgeries on that little boy's throat at the same time, right? Five surgeries all together. They went in and took a biopsy and found out they don't have to do any surgery. Gone. Said it was a miracle, right? A miracle. The doctor said that's a miracle from the Lord. So we thank God for that. Uh, I shared on Wednesday night prayer, Doris's uh, uh, brother, not father, I want to say brother Tim, uh, who's actually a paraplegic. He's in a wheelchair. He had, uh, is it septic in the blood? Is that what you call it? It gets, it gets infected. Anyways, they, had, they were ready to amputate his leg, and we prayed one of the nights of fasting together. Well, the blood reversed. It all changed, and it, it turns out that not only did he not need an amputation, but they sent him home the next day. They sent him home and said, you're okay. You're fine, which is a huge blessing. We praise God for that as well. There was one more, and it was on the tip of, oh, uh, Gary Nowinski, Beth and Gary, you guys know Gary, he's been here for a while. He needed a kidney transplant. We have been praying for years for a kidney transplant. Came out of three days of fasting and prayer. They found him a kidney. He went and got, he, listen, he went and got the transplant in Ohio. Normally you have to continue on the dialysis a few weeks after you get the new kidney to make sure everything's working. At the next day he got the kidney. They said, everything's fine. No dialysis. You're doing great. So he's going to be coming back from Ohio with a new kidney, which we thank God for. So like you can see, you start fasting, you start praying, God starts doing miracles, right? And we're hearing more and more as they're coming in week after week. So we thank God for that. So let's keep that prayer up in the house. Amen. Amen. Man, all right. Are you ready? All right, I'm kind of ready. Let's, let's pray together. I'm like halfway ready. That's why I'm on my third Diet Coke. I'm getting really ready. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the blessings in our lives. We thank you for Diet Coke and everything that keeps us up. Um, Lord, but we need your grace and your spirit today. Lord, this word is an important word, and it's got a lot of intricacies and nuances to be able to work through and weave through in the teaching, and I just pray for the grace to be able to communicate it well, but beyond that, Lord, beyond gifting and ability and, and our own knowledge, Lord, we're asking for a move of your spirit to be able to take the word, to be able to take the scriptures, to be able to take the truth and begin to apply it to every single heart that's here today. Like you taking the five loaves and the two fish as the people began to sit down, you would break apart the little bit that we have, a few scriptures, a few ideas, a few sermon series, a few things, and you would begin applying it across to everybody. Everybody would be fed today. Everybody would walk away and say, that, that, that's something that God spoke to me. Lord, set people free today, I pray. And open up their eyes to see what we're about to speak about. That they wouldn't look at it and say, well, that's for you. But we'd see it in all of our lives. And allow the Spirit of God to begin to work. 
God, we thank you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. All right. Do my exercises before I begin. (laughs) I got to stretch a little bit. I told everybody, the, the, the worship team asked, how are you doing? I, you've been off for two weeks now. I said, I'm actually nervous. I'm really nervous. You're, you sit down for a little while, you get back up, and you go through all those feelings again. But God is going to be gracious. All right, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Um, you know, I've been really blessed with the opportunity and the privilege to lead a number of different international mission teams. In fact, Beth and I, when we were serving here at the youth group, We would take the kids on two trips every year, every single year. And I'll never forget one trip to Guatemala. There was a trip to Guatemala that's always stuck with me. We were taking the students. We had about 30 high school students, and we were taking them up to the Pinolito Mountains where we were bringing some supplies, and we were going to pray for families in these remote villages. And these remote villages, they were so remote that when we walked in and we came into some of the shacks, because they were only wooden shacks on the side of the mountain, when we would come in, the little kids would start screaming uncontrollably because they've never seen blonde hair before. And they would see Beth and they would just start freaking out. They would start literally freaking out. And and you have to understand how we had to get in, how far into the jungle these villages actually were. We, We literally took pickup trucks where we sat in the back and we had to drive across these huge fields that were owned by drug cartels, right? We, we had to make a pack with the drug cartels to let us through. Then after we got through that, we had to literally wage up a river, this roaring river. We had to get the kids and the, all the equipment and the trucks through the river. Th- then we had to hike up the mountain, which is like my favorite part. Now I got to do hiking. I hike up the mountain and I get up in the mountain and and now I got to walk these little goat paths into the middle of the rainforest, into the jungle. With They're telling you, they're telling you the type of snakes that are poisonous before you go on the goat path. So he's saying, if you see a green one, that's the green mamba. You run from the green. <laughs> they're telling It was absolutely crazy, right? It was nuts. And we got done after the ministry, after everything we were doing for the day, and we're heading back, and one of the local pastors just show up. And these jungle people, they don't like kind of knock on a door. They don't, they just show up. They just come out of the brush like here I am and he showed up he shows up and he says there's a little boy that's in need I I need to grab your team you need to come with me so I told Beth to take the rest of the kids and head to the mission base I said you go to the mission base and I grabbed what like three or four of the boys and I headed with the pastor to see what was going on and he brought us to this cliff literally it was a cliff and we had to scale it I'm holding on to roots coming out of the tree I'm holding on to trees I'm trying to get up it as we get up to the cliff as we get to the plateau there's this little mud hut of a house no electricity there's, there's nothing there. It, it's, it's completely pitch black on the inside. And we go in, and I kind of hear a voice that's whimpering off in the corner. And in this little house with no one there, there's this little 8-year-old, 10-year-old boy. That's, that's it. Right? And I got up to him, and I realized that his leg is slashed open. He has this cut on his leg. It's pussing. It's infected. It smells like gangrene. And as I'm sitting and I'm looking at the boy... The pastor begins to tell me a little bit more of his story. He tells me that his mom had died six months earlier because she was sitting inside the kitchen in the house and a poisonous snake bit her off of the wall. So already I'm freaking out. Already I'm looking at, I said, you brought me here? This is, no, 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 no. I don't come here. You bring other people here. I don't do poisonous snakes. So I'm freaking out already to begin with. Then he goes on to tell me that the father realized that his crops didn't come in. And he didn't have enough money or enough food to provide for him and the boy. So he left about a month, month and a half earlier to go try to find some work to take care of each other. 
So he left the boy alone. So the boy went out in the front of this little shack one day. He took a machete, and he decided that he was going to clean up the grounds for when his father came home. So he's cutting all the brush. He's cutting the trees, and he misses one of the tree limbs, comes full swing down with a machete straight onto his leg. And I mean literally almost cut off his leg, only stopped because of the bone. Eight years old, eight years old. So he's crying and he's on the ground. Nobody is to be seen. So what does he do? He takes leaves and dirt and he stuffs it in the cut to try to stop the bleeding. A day goes by, two days go by, it starts to infect. It gets so bad, the little boy can't even walk. So what does he do? He creates this little cubby hole in the house where he puts a little beans and some rice and he literally gets in there because he can't walk anymore. No electricity. I'm telling you, when it gets dark on the mountainside, like the mountains here, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Nothing around, no people around. And he's sitting, listen to this, in the side of the shack by himself, unable to walk, throbbing in pain, crying out with no hope. No father, no mother. And then this was the kicker. The pastor told me this. He says he hasn't been there for a day. He hasn't been there for two days. He's been there for weeks by himself. I looked at the pastor. I said, can you translate? He said, yeah. It took a while because the boy was so scared that we were finally able to convince him to come back with us to, to the mission base. So I put him up on my back like a piggyback ride, and then we form a human chain. All the boys start grabbing my belt, and they grab each other's hands, and they grab the tree because we got to get the kid down the cliff. So we take him down the cliff. We get to the bottom. Now we got two miles where we got to walk out of the rainforest to get to the mission base. So we're literally trying to, to, to shift his weight, and we're giving him to other people so that they can carry him. We finally get back to the mission base. The missionaries run out. They see the boy. Boy, they get him on the operation table inside. They numb the leg. And then with me there, I don't know what they were thinking. I'm there in the room. They're cutting the leg open. They're ripping it open. And they're pulling out all the infected skin. They're pulling out all the gangrene. They're cleaning it all. I can see the bone. See the bone. And then they're stitching it up. Then they turn to me and say, would you like to do a stitch? <laughs> what? I am a pastor. I am not a missionary. So they stitch them all up, they get them up, and then here's the miracle. I'm gonna tell you what the miracle was. We didn't know what to do with the boy, so we start to pray. The grandmother comes out of the forest as we are praying. She's from another remote village. She comes out of the forest because she ran out of food. She heard the missionaries were up there. She comes out, and as she's walking, she sees the boy, and she breaks down in tears. She starts crying all over the place, and she says this. She says, I heard his mother had died, and I heard his father has left, but I didn't know where he was, and I couldn't check on him because I couldn't get up on the cliff. We were able to reunite him with his grandmother and get him back to the village together so that he would be okay, so that the grandmother gave them the food that they needed, gave him everything that he needed. It was incredible. And when I say this was an emotional, heavy day, when it was all done, I literally fell down physically because of how emotional it really was. And as we went back to the mission base to debrief all of this with the kids, with the students, I went off by myself because I needed to debrief it a little bit. And I started praying to God. I'm sitting under the Guatemalan skies. I see all the beautiful stars and I start talking to the Lord and I started asking him questions. This is what I started asking. I said, God, could it be possible? Could it be possible that you raised up these 30 students and you put it on our hearts to come down to Guatemala? You put them all together and you raised over $60,000 because that's what it cost. And none of those kids had any money. The body of Christ put that money in the offering bucket to be able to get them down there. You raised over $60,000. You drove us all the way up to the Denver airport. You put us on a plane with 30 high school kids. No getting out. 
You put us there and you flew us hundreds and thousands of miles down here to Guatemala where we got into Guatemala City. And then you put us in the back of pickup trucks. We went to Zacapa City. Then when we were at Zacapa City, we had to make a, an agreement with the drug smugglers so we could drive through their fields. We wage through a river. We hike up the side of the mountain to hike out into the middle of the rainforest. You did all of this. You arranged this whole team. And this is my question for that one little boy that was sitting there crying on the hillside that nobody saw but you. No one saw him. No one heard him but you. Could you put this whole mission team together just for him? If we did nothing else, you would have sent us and spent that type of money, that type of time. You would have raised up. You would have done all of this for that boy? And as I'm sitting there and I'm asking the question, there's a few seasons in my life I felt like the Spirit of God has come and impressed in my heart the Word of God so deep. And the Spirit of God came that night, and I'll never forget it. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, yes. Yes. And when he said that, it flipped everything up on side its head. It, it changed my whole perspective when it came to missions, when it came to ministry, when it came to anything. See, the problem with most Christians, including myself, is that we're always learning about the 30,000-foot view. So it's all about the kingdom of God, advancing the kingdom of God, doing missions. But we miss the point of what it really is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me show you. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 24 through 31. We're going to read it together. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but you should get one. Let's pray. All right, Genesis 1, 24 through 31 says this. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We're going to speak on that one week, so pray for me on that one. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with its seed. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now, Genesis is a very important book because it shows us the divine order. It shows us God's plan before the fall. It shows us how God intended everything to work, how he created everything to work. And one of the things that book shows us about humankind, our human nature, is the fact that we have been created in the image of God. 
Now, let that sink in just for a second, because when you start thinking about that phrase and what I just said, the words and the statement have serious implications that go with them. The Bible's actually saying, no matter what family you've come from or lack of family that you've come from, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter how low you have gone, every single human being has been created in the image of God. And therefore, every single human being reflects God. Every person you're ever going to meet in life, whether that's doing prison ministry or you go to prison, whether that's the homeless man or homeless woman on the side of the street, right? Whether that's the person that's leading a political party that you're so angry with and you're so frustrated with. Whether, listen, whether it's your neighbor that is driving you crazy, every single one has a glorious significance about them. And not only is there a glorious significance about them, get this, there's a glorious significance about you. Now when you really understand that and you get it, it changes how the church reacts to relationships. It changes how the church actually does ministry. Let me give you an example from my life. Let me share with you something honest. My wife is here, but she, she could back this all up. We went out on Valentine's Day. We went out on the weekend to go get something to eat and to spend a little bit of time together. So we went downtown to a restaurant, and then we did our second favorite thing to do on most date nights. We're, we're not that crazy. We're not that spectacular. We went to Barnes & Noble. We go to Barnes & Noble. I like to read the motorcycle magazine. She likes to read the interior design magazines. And we just sit there and we don't even say things sometimes. We just kind of read the magazines and hang out. And, and as we're finishing up and we're leaving, there was a homeless man that was sitting in the entrance, right between the double doors where the foyer is, where you buy more books, where they put all the bargain stuff out there, thinking you're going to grab it then and come back in and pay for it, right? There's the homeless man. And we leave, and, and we see him right there, and then we walk out. And these, this was the weekend where it was like negative temps, right? It was so cold that we were having trouble actually getting to our car. I'm screaming. She's screaming. We're yelling because we're cold. And we finally get into the car. I start the car, and I could see that Beth is not okay. She's quiet. She's not saying a word. And I know what it is. She's wondering what's going to happen to the homeless man once the Barnes & Noble closes because he can't be outside in the cold. And I'm sitting there for a while, and we, we barely talked. We said a few things. We kind of looked at each other. And then Beth went out, and she began asking the guy questions. And we found out he was from New Mexico. His name was Pablo, that he drove all the way here to get surgery on his knee. His car got stolen. He was going to Penrose. But as we asked more questions, this happens a lot, there was a lot of holes that started coming into the story. There was all types of, oh, you know where Garden of the Gods is. You know, and, and we start going through this. But we didn't care. We weren't trying to call him on anything. Our heart was just to get him a motel room and get him a hot meal. That's what we wanted to do. And as we were going to get him a hotel room, I started getting more and more increasingly frustrated with my wife. Because I've dealt with homeless people before. I've worked with them for years in Colorado Springs. I used to work with a ministry called More Than a Meal. I'd hang out in Tent City. I literally would do Thanksgiving with the homeless. They would get the 50-gallon drum and they'd get a turkey and everybody, we knew Grandpa, we knew Wild Bill, we knew everybody by name. We did a lot of homeless ministry, and the one thing that I've learned from all the ministry is that the motels do not like when you get a room for a homeless man or a homeless woman. They don't want it to happen, so they do everything they can to try to deter it, right? So everybody has to show an ID, even the person that's going to be using it. Everybody's got to show, not just the credit card. And most homeless people do not have IDs. So now I'm trying to figure out how to work that out. They shut down every single entrance in the building except the front so that when you come in and out, the manager can see who's actually coming in the building and who's coming out because they want to know who's there. They do all these little tricks to try to deter the homeless from being able to get in. 
And we have put homeless people up for, for a night. We've done it for weekends. We had one couple we put up for a week as we were trying to get them up on their feet. And I have had hotel managers flip out on me. I have found out after we left a couple, whoever it was, they had a party afterwards. They broke lamps. They broke mirrors. They stole TVs. I had one couple who decided to shoot drugs while they were in the motel room, and he missed his vein and sprayed blood all over the ceiling. I had that one happen. I, I had one guy, remember the guy at Walmart? I literally gave the guy a ride because he was out in the cold and I got him a motel room. He's got tattoos all over his face. He just got out of prison. And he t this is what he tells me as I'm getting in the room. He says, I was gonna do something really bad to you tonight. That's what he says. He says, but now that you got me the room, you're a really nice person. That, that, that's, that's what he said. And you want to know what I said to him? I'm not even joking. I looked at him with all the tattoos and I said, listen to me. I'm not really that nice of a person. You're a freak. I didn't want to stop and get you. I, I was honest. I said, I didn't want to stop. But the Jesus inside of me, the love of God inside of me compelled me to stop. In my flesh, I don't want anything to do with you. That shocked him. I shared the gospel. He got saved. But I've dealt with this type of stuff before. I've almost put my life on the line. I've dealt with the blood on the ceiling. I've dealt with, so, so here's the thing. I'm starting to get angry because this was supposed to be a night for Valentine's dinner. We were supposed to enjoy ourselves. And now I'm worried about how to get them a room. How am I gonna do this? How can I talk the manager into it? What could possibly go wrong? How do we protect ourselves for the fallout that's gonna happen later because it is gonna happen. You wanna know why I was mad? Because the Lord dealt with me on this later on in the evening. You want to know why I was mad? Because I was looking at getting this man a motel room through the lens of doing a good, good deed or a good work instead of looking at it through the lens of him being created in the image of God. The fact that he was created in the image of God gives him a value and a worth and a dignity that is more valuable than anything else that was going to happen that evening. More valuable, higher priority than our Valentine's dinner, than our new car getting a little smelly, than even the fallout and the implications that we were about to walk through. See, my wife was right. It happens a lot in our house. I don't like it, but it happens. In fact, let me show you a scripture that begins to deal with this issue head on and shows us God's heart when it deals with man being created in his image. Turn with me to Genesis chapter nine. This will blow you away. Genesis nine, verse five and six, and I wanna read it to you. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. That scripture is crazy. That's great. You want to know why that scripture is so crazy? Because this is God in the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, implementing the death penalty. Right? He's saying, I'm going to hold you accountable for the life of your fellow human beings. And why? Why? Was it because it was part of the law or something of the old Testament? No. The, the law wouldn't show up for what? Another 700, 1,000 years later, whatever it is. 
It wasn't part of the moral law. It wasn't part of the ceremonial law. God says, no, 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 I'm going to hold you accountable. You want to know why? Because I created every single human being in my image. And because of that, I've endowed on them certain rights. And I've given them dignity. And I've given them value. And I've given them worth that is high and far above anything else in my creation. Think about how this doctrine affects us. Think about how we treat our bosses. Think about how we treat our spouses. Think about how we treat that person in the community group that is just so draining, right? Or the drama queen in our extended family. Or the uncle that nobody else wants to talk to. Everybody's got one of those. Right? Think about the way it affects the way we treat that rebellious child we just want to throw through the wall. Or the way, again, how it affects the way that we treat the neighbor that is a thorn in our side. See, how we, pe- how we treat people, I want you to get this, is directly correlated with whether or not we see them as being created in the image of God. How you view things like abortion, racial injustice, sex trafficking, pornography, which some people in the church think doesn't hurt anybody. All of that begins to change as you grow in the revelation that every one of these people have been created in God's image. And they have a dignity, they have a worth, and they have a value. And they are not to be consumed. They, they, we are not to kill babies because it's convenient in our lives. That, that's not how that works. We are not to watch pornography because it gives us something. No, no, no. We are to hold those lives up in dignity and value and worth and not consume them, but bless them and honor them because they have been created in the image of God. Look at what the book of James says. James chapter 3, verse 9. Let me read it to you. It says, with the tongue... We praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Man, talk about convicting. We could come into church and we could raise our hands and we can praise the Lord. And then we can go home and we could demean our wife or our husband. We can make them feel stupid or show our intelligence as superior to theirs. Right? We could come here and we could worship God and then we go home and we get on the social media sites or whatever and we find somebody with a different political view and we don't just debate the issue, we attack their character. We rip them apart saying, well, this is because of this. This is because you don't understand that. And we curse them even though we bless God, even though they too have been created in the image of God. We come in and we praise the Lord. We lift them up and then we go home and we're so frustrated with our kids that we can allow such negative speech to come out of our mouths and we could say things like, you're an idiot or you're never gonna amount to anything. And here we are praising God and then those that have been created in his image, we tell them they're worthless. And God from the very beginning says, no. They've been created in my image. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't tell the truth. It doesn't mean we don't resolve issues in relationships. But when we do it, we don't curse people. We don't demean people. We don't rub their face in their own stupidity and act as if we are somehow superior. That's straight to the heart for all of us. Okay, let me do this. That was all foundational. That was just setting everything up for where we really wanted to go today. Because everybody will probably hear that and say, Pastor Michael, we agree with you on that. We agree. We got that. But let me ask you a question that I started asking this week. And then through the scriptures, began finding the answer that began to change and revolutionize the way I look at this idea of being created in the image of God. Let me ask you a question. This is the question I wrote down in my Bible. This is the question I typed out in my notes. This is what I asked. I said this. Why is it that we live in a world with so much violence and so much injustice? Why is the image of God constantly being trampled on by terrorist groups, by genocides, by sex trafficking, by each other yelling at one another, cursing one another, using each other, manipulating relationships to be able to get what it is that we want? Why, why can't we love one another and see the image of God in each other and walk in that? Why can't we treat people the way that we would actually want to be treated? It was a question that just kept on coming up in my heart and my mind. And I want to give you the answer because the answer is where I really want to go today. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's going to come up. And I want you to see it. I want you to write this down because this is the answer to the question. Listen to this. We don't honor the image of God in other people. We don't see it like we should because the image of God is broken inside of you and me. We don't honor the image of God in other people. We don't see it like we should because the image of God is broken inside of you and me. The image of God is broken in us, therefore we don't honor it in others. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you reread it, it says we've been created in the image of God. But when you read that, when the Bible says we've been made in his image, it doesn't mean like we're small little paintings of God or representations of God or small little copies of the original. No, no, no. It is so much deeper than that. When it says that we have been created in his image, the original Hebrew actually means we've been created almost like a mirror. We are a mirror, listen to this, that actually reflects the glory of God. And, and think about that. Just go all the way with me just for a second. We are the only created beings that have the ability to have an intimate relationship with the Lord. We can talk to him and he talks back to us. He talks back to our spirits. And not only do we have an intimate relationship, but through Christ now, we are one with him. We are in union with him. He is in me. I am in him. We are in the Father. I mean, that is amazing. And not only do we have the ability to have an intimate relationship with him, but through God's creative work, we have the ability to have intimate relationships with each other, which means this. God has given us a capacity to be able to reflect his character, his joy, his life, his love to other people. And to really understand what it is that I want to talk about. To really grasp it, there's two points you have to start really wrestling with just for a moment. Number one, we are the mirror, which means we do not create our own glory. We can only reflect it, and we reflect it from God. He is the source of the glory, the Lord of all. But the second thing you have to understand is the actual definition of glory. Because when you look it up in the Hebrew, and you better write this one down because it is important, glory actually means importance. 
So when we say that God is all glorious and we sing those types of songs, what we're really saying is that God is all important. God is supremely significant. Okay, now, now watch this because you got to track with me. you got to follow me here because now we're about to go into some really deep water. I'm just laying it all out to go where we need to go. And if you're not paying attention, slap yourself in the face, hit yourself, smack yourself, whatever you need to do because I don't want to confuse you today. I want to set you free today. And we got to think a little bit. we got to work through this a little bit, okay? Since we cannot create our own glory, because being made in God's image really means being made like a mirror that reflects his glory. Are you ready for this? Then we as Christians can only bring freedom and life and power and deliverance and joy and love to other people around us, showing them their dignity and their worth if we receive and we reflect importance and significance from God to others. Okay, watch this. If you're going to bring life and glory of God to people around you, which is what we're created for, watch this, then we have to make sure that our souls are facing God. Listen to me. And we're receiving our importance from him. We receive our significance from him. The problem with the church is that we don't face our souls towards God to receive our importance, our glory, our significance. No, no, no. We face our souls to creation, not the creator. And we try to find meaning and value from the creation instead of the creator. Right? So what are we doing? I'm trying to find meaning, significance, importance in my job. I'm trying to find it on my social media site with how many likes I got or how many friends I could get, right? I'm trying to sit, find it in a social cause that I'm super excited about and that everybody on my college is telling me something I got to get behind, right? We're, we're trying to find our meaning from all these different things. We want to find it in our family. We want to find it in our marriage, right? We, we want to find it in how much ministry we do, how much I could serve. That, that's my identity. That, I am a servant. That's where I find my meaning. That's where I find my significance, we want to find it by being the perfect father or the perfect mother. So people say or they, they see something, we're constantly covering up all our faults and our mistakes, even to our kids, because we find our meaning and our significance from being that perfect father, even though we are not that perfect father. We even try to find it in power. Oh, if we could see power in life or power over relationships, now I have value, now I have meaning, now I have significance. And we're seeing it all in our culture. Everybody's fighting for power. Everyone wants the last word. Nobody wants to get down and just say, you know what, God's got control of it all. I want to show you what I know. And, I want, and, and, and it's all power struggles. And it's all linked to the reality that we're trying to find. Literally, our identity, our image, our value, our meaning, our significance, our importance in the things of the world instead of in God himself. And because we're not receiving our importance from God, because we're not reflecting his glory, we have a broken image of God inside of ourselves, which leads to trampling the image of God in others. For example, some of us in this room, we make work our glory. Right? That's where we get our meaning, our significance, our importance from is our work. What happens when you get your importance from work instead of from God? What happens when you turn your soul to the created things instead of to the creator to be a reflection of his glory, the importance that he gives, the significance that he gives? What takes place? 
Well, over time, listen to me, you become a workaholic. That's your life. Because it's not just work anymore. It's not just something you do. It's not something that pays some bills. It's not a means to an end. It's everything to you. Without that, you don't have meaning. You don't have significance. So you become a workaholic even at the expense of your kids, your family, your friends for your singles, your church body. You're not even church. You can't even get there some Sundays because you're trying to actually get up the corporate ladder, right? And what's happening? Because I'm getting my meaning and my significance from the creation instead of the creator, something is broken in the image of God in me, and now I'm trampling on it in others. I'm not paying attention to my kids. I'm not showing them that they have value. I'm not showing them that they have meaning. I'm not reflecting God's glory back to them. It gets to a point where it becomes overwhelming because now we start getting tempted to lie, cheat, or steal to be able to get to the next position, right? Because we've been stuck at a position. So now we're looking at how everybody else is doing, and now we fall in line with the world. Now we start lying like somebody else is lying. We're fudging reports. We're, we're saying we did this on our sales and we didn't do that. And we're doing all these types of things because our meaning, our significance, our importance comes from our job and not from God. And what's happening is we're literally stepping on the image of God on other people as we're trying to advance to receive our importance from our work. And when the job takes a downturn, when you lose it, when we go into CV19 and you built a company and now it's falling apart and you've done everything you can to try to, to get yourself out and it's over, what happens? The stress is so overwhelming because it's not just the loss. It's not just a grieving and letting go. It's your identity. It's so overwhelming that you start taking it out on other people around you. The stress will overcome you and you can't reflect God's glory to others because you're always so short with them. You trample the image of God down in their lives because it's broken in yours. Do you see how it works? I've seen it in marriage. I've seen couples get together and instead of being those mirrors that reflect God's image, created in his image to be a mirror to receive their importance and significance solely from God and reflect it to each other so that they could serve one another, you know what happens? They find their love and their romances and their commitment, their source of value and meaning in their lives. And they turn away from the Lord and they put it on their partner. They say, you have to be perfect because if you're not perfect, it takes away meaning in me. Your love has to be because your love is everything to me. You're, you're, you're perfect. you got to be out. And the person, the partner that's trying to live up to that standard is being destroyed. They're being squashed under the weight of it because we're not finding our significance in God. We're finding our significance in the performance of another person. And it tears marriages apart. It puts strain on marriages. They can't ever have a bad day. The spouse can never have a bad day. They can never fail. Because when they do, you trample down on the image of God. You destroy their image because something's broken in your image. They can never tell the truth of how they feel because you just louch at them. You just, ah, you're just so angry because now they're failing you and what you felt they were supposed to give. So there's no truth in the marriage. There's no life in the marriage. There's no love in the, it's just literally an utter mess. I've seen it with parenting as well, and I hate to even go here, but it's the truth. We derive our meaning, our value from being perfect parents. 
I'm going to be the perfect parent. No such thing. No such thing. So then our kids act out or something happens. And what, what happens? We respond to them not properly, not with the right mix of, ju- of truth and love, but we snap at them. We're angry at them. Why? Because their failing is pointing out your failing. You're getting angry because your meaning and your significance was in your parenting, how well you could train your kids. I won't do it like my father did it. I won't do it. I'm going to be better than that. I'm going to be greater than that. That's where my meaning, that's where my importance comes from. So when my kid doesn't live up to what I felt was supposed to give me my importance, I snap on him. And we let things come out of our mouths that are just death to our children. You let me down. You failed. You're the worst. You're not going to amount. I hear it all the time. Because we can't deal with the battles they're going through because their battles reflect the battle in us. Do you see how it all works? If there's an image that's broken inside of you, you trample the image in somebody else. Okay. So what's the solution? Gave us the problem, Pastor Michael. How do we resolve this? Because to be honest, if we were all going to sit here honestly, we all have a broken image of God in us. We're not... We're not pointed in the right direction to receive our importance, our glory from the Lord. We're pointing in the wrong direction to something else. All of us have that. How how do we fix it? Well, let me give you two things that the Lord gave to me this last week as I'm praying over this, and then we're going to close. So we're almost there. Just just bear with me. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's going to come up on the screen. Ready? And we all who with unfailed faces contemplate or behold, some, some translations say behold, the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The, the Bible says, it's just sharing what I share. When you turn towards God and you begin to behold him, his glory, the importance of your life, the significance of your life begins to transform you and it begins to reflect out to other people. But the question is, where do we behold them? Well, in the context of 2 Corinthians, listen to this, it's in the word. This is why devotion life is so important in a Christian. You can't get what I'm speaking about just by me getting up here and teaching you Sunday after Sunday. You can't get it just from worship alone. You have to behold him. This says, this is the living word of God. This is God's heart. This is his character. And you need to spend time every day, 15 minutes, a half an hour, I don't care what your time is, spending time beholding him, looking into this word, seeing his glory, seeing who he is, seeing his importance, which then gives you your importance. And the reason Christians don't have discipline or they don't have a devotion life is because they have a wrong understanding of how beholding God actually works. When they read the word, they think it's supposed to work like a Red Bull instead of a vitamin. I've shared this before, right? What is Red Bull's slogan? We're going to give you wings. You drink a Red Bull and what happens? You feel it as soon as you drink that thing, right? And you start thinking in your mind, I could do what they do on the commercial. I could jump out of planes. I could take a mountain bike. I could flip it off a cliff. I could go base jump. All these crazy thoughts start coming into your mind because you feel something the second you drink it. And we expect the Bible to be exactly the same thing. We expect, oh, I read it for 15 minutes today. I should be feeling, whoa, I should, whoa, the glory of God. It's there. I feel it's moving, Michael. We think you feel something when in reality, the Bible doesn't work like a Red Bull. The Bible works like a vitamin. And what happens when you take a vitamin? 
No wings? I don't sit, I don't know about you, I don't take a vitamin C when I'm feeling sick and go, whoa, whoa, this, wow, this, whoa, this is amazing. I don't look at my skin or my hair thinking, wow, it's gleaming, it's amazing, my cuticles, everything is changing, everything is becoming, no, who does that? But you keep taking it every day. You take it for years sometimes. Let me tell you something. A sickness and illness comes your way, and suddenly you're able to fight back. It doesn't affect you the way that it did before. And that's exactly how it works as you're beholding the glory of God through his word first. Every day that you stay in there, it's doing things in you that you're not even seeing or even experiencing. I'm going to tell you straight. There are days I have my devotion time, and I go to sleep. Halfway through it. It's not exciting. Especially when I'm literally in Chronicles and I'm doing genealogies. I'm literally falling asleep, right? I, I don't feel, but I get back up and I keep reading because it's doing something inside me. And then suddenly you're at work one day. It's a month later, two months later, a year later you've been doing it. You're at work and suddenly an issue that used to affect you doesn't affect you anymore. You start going, wait a second, I used to lose it on that guy. I used to freak out. If I got news like that, if I got called up to my boss, I would have lost it. I would go to the bathroom and cry in the corner. That's not affecting me the way that it used to affect. Something has changed because you're not realizing you're beholding the glory of God. You're receiving importance and significance like a vitamin that you're not feeling but is beginning to build up inside of you. And then the day comes when a situation happens and you don't respond the same way anymore because your importance and your significance is now in him and you reflect it to other people where now you're free to serve them instead of beat them down. I've seen it in my own life. Suddenly you're hanging out in your marriage and your wife or your spouse says so, and it used to send you off the rails. Your kid says so, used to send you off the rails. The police show up at your house. That used to just literally shake you to the core. I learned this one from my mom. She was always beholding the glory of the God because there was a lot of police that came to the house. That's not even a joke. But it doesn't affect you. You look at it and say, okay, that's a problem. We're going to work through it. I'm going to deal with the issue, but I don't respond in the way that I used to because I don't get my value. I don't get my significance in being a perfect parent. I get my value and significance, for, and it's done something inside of me. Amen? All right, let me give you the second thing, and let me close. Gosh, I'm going long. Could you guys just bear? Three people say yes. The rest are saying, please, just end. Just end. I'm, but I'm gonna, I can't handle it. All right, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16. Look at this. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Let me just paraphrase this quickly. The Bible is saying that there's people that are trying to behold the glory of God, read the glory of God, but they can't because there's a veil over their face, over their heart. And the scripture says that that veil is removed in Jesus. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a little twist on this as well. If you're not careful as a Christian, that veil, that unbelief can return. Your heart can harden. Hebrews testifies to that. So what do you need to do? This is what I do. Every time I get down to pray or to read, anytime I read the word, I spend anywhere five to 10 minutes calling on the Holy Spirit. And what do I ask? I ask the Holy Spirit to remove the veil from my heart and from my eyes. So listen to me. So I can see Jesus in the Bible. I can see Jesus. I can see a salvation. I can see the gospel. So, see, a lot of people read the Bible, even Christians, and they don't see Jesus. They see the law. 
They see things that they're supposed to do. They see guilt. They see condemnation, but they don't see Jesus. They see the wrath of God, but they don't see Jesus. And when you see all those things and you're not actually seeing the gospel, you know what it does? It turns your heart away from God instead of toward God. The only thing that can attract your heart towards God to open up to receive your significance from him is Jesus himself. So when I read... I don't just jump in the Bible trying to get something done. Even if I'm in a car and I'm going to listen to the word, I pull off on the side of the road and I take five to ten minutes to start praying to the Holy Spirit. And I say, Holy Spirit, take away the veil from my eyes. Let me see Jesus in the scriptures. He's on every page. He's, he told the Pharisees. He says, you quote the word, you know the law. It all testifies to me. It's all about me. See, when the veil starts coming off your eyes, you start reading stories like David and Goliath, and you start realizing, I'm not the David. I'm the scared Israelite on the side of the mountain. That Goliath is that lust or that covetousness in my heart that's trying to take me away from my God. And I can't beat it. It taunts me every single day, and I sit up there scared out of my mind. But then you see David, and who's David? David's Jesus, sent by the Father to go check on his brothers. He says, you go check on your brothers to see how they're doing. He comes over, and what does he do? He sees Goliath, and he says, don't worry, don't worry. None of you could take him out. I'll take him out. I'll take him out. And he goes down and gets five stones, the five names of God, all the five Hebrew names, Jehovah Rafi, Jehovah Nisa, Jehovah Shalom, all of it. He grabs the five names of God, and he takes out the giant and cuts off the head. And you know what Jesus says? Here's all your sin. I defeated it on the cross. And if you could trust me in faith, I'll work it in your life. You start reading stories like Moses when he was banned from the promised land, the Holy Spirit starts taking the veil off your eyes. Why was he banned? Was it just because he rebelled against God? Yes, but it's deeper than that. He was a type of the law, and the law could never inherit the promise. The promised land always represented the new life in Christ, freedom from sin, living a life of joy, living a life of peace, living a life of love for God. And the law can never get you there. Trying to do better and be better will never get you there. Trying to perfect your own life can never get you there. So God said Moses can't go in because he's a representation of that law. The only one who could go in is Joshua. And Joshua is Jesus. He brings you in. By believing in him, the spirit of God does a work inside of you that you can never do in yourself. See, you start opening up the word when the veil starts being taken away. And you start seeing Jesus everywhere. And it begins to warm your heart again to God. It begins to draw you back to where now you receive your significance, where you receive your importance from him. And as you receive that, you're no longer trampling on the image of God of other people, but you're giving out that same importance, same significance to the fact that they be created in his image from what you now receive from him. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.